Chapter Four of Forest Days by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. As merry a peal as ever was rung, though not perhaps a scientifical one, ushered in the month of May, and as bright a sun as ever shone rose up in the eastern sky and cast long lines of light over the green fields, glistening with the tears of departed night. The spring had been one of those fair seasons which have but rarely visited us in latter years, when, according to the old rhyme, March winds and April showers had brought about May flowers. Almost every leaf was upon the trees, except, indeed, in the case of some of those sturdy old oaks, which, in their brown hardihood, seemed unwilling to put on the livery of spring. The snowdrop had had her season and was gone, but the violet still lingered, shedding her perfume in the shade, and the hawthorn flaunted her fragrant blossoms to the wooing air. It was, in short, the merry, merry month of May, and her ensigns were out in every hedge and every field, calling young hearts to gaiety and enjoyment, and promising a bright summer in her train. Many a maiden had been out before the sun rose, from behind the distant slopes to gather May dew to refresh her beauty, and many a youth, seeking the blossom of the white thorn, had met, by preconcerted accident, the girl he loved under the lover's tree, and kissed her as warmly as under the mistletoe. Young Harland, however, had looked for Kate Greenley at the place where he had found her on the same day in the former year, but had looked in vain and, as he returned homeward, somewhat disappointed, he found her with a party of gay girls, sometimes laughing with their laughter, sometimes falling into deep and gloomy thought. Her young companions broke away to leave her alone with her acknowledged lover, and Kate walked quickly home by his side, with a varying and a changeful air, which we must notice for a moment, though we cannot pause to tell all that passed between them. Sometimes she was gay and saucy as her wont. Sometimes she was thoughtful and even sad. Sometimes she affected scorn for her lover's gentle reproaches. Sometimes she raised her eyes and gazed on him with a look of tenderness and regret that made him sorry he had uttered them. Her demeanour was as varying as an April day, but that it had often been before, and he saw not a deeper shadow that spread with an ominous cloud-like heaviness over all. They parted at the door of her father's house, and young Ralph Harland turned him home again, thinking of the pleasure of the merry dance and all the sports that were to come, and how a little gift which he had prepared for her he loved would quiet all idle quarrels between him and fair Kate Greenley. The village green, the sweet little village green which we have described, was early decked out with all that could be required for the sports of the day. The tall maypole in the centre, surmounted with a coronet of flowers, streaming with ribbons and green leaves, and every sort of country ornament, was prepared for the dance around it, which was soon to take place. Every tree was hung with garlands, and even the old well was decorated with wreaths and branches of the hawthorn and the oak. The inn itself was a complete mass of flowers, and before the door, at a very early hour, were arranged the various prizes which were to reward the successful competitors in the rustic sports of the day. There was a runlet of wine stood beside the little bench beneath the eaves, and in a pen, formed by four hurdles, 
was a milk-white ram with his horns gilded and a chaplet twisted round his curly pate and further off leaning against the wall stood a long yew-bow with a baldric and sheaf of arrows winged with peacock's feathers bearing silver ornaments upon the quiver these prizes were the first object of curiosity and at an early hour many a group of boys and girls and youths and maidens gathered round the pen where the fat long-fleeced ram was confined and pulled him by the gilded horns while others looked at the bow and every now and then stretched out a hand to touch and examine it more closely but were deterred by a loud shrill voice from one of the windows of the inn shouting beware the thong no season of merriment occurred at that time in england without bringing together its crowd of minstrels and musicians and even then so populous had the gentle craft become and so dissolute withal that laws and regulations were found necessary for the purpose of diminishing the numbers of its followers and regulating their manners free drink for the minstrels was a general proverb assented to by all and the consequence was that having the opportunity they seldom wanted the inclination to pour their libations too freely a good deal to the inconvenience very frequently of their entertainers the class however which came to a may-day merry-making in a common country village was of course not of the highest grade either in musical skill or professional rank and the first who appeared on the village green was a piper with his bag under his arm producing as he came those extraordinary sounds which are found to have a very pleasant effect upon some portions of the human species but are almost universally distasteful to the canine race upon this occasion almost all the dogs in the village followed him either barking or howling the good piper however did not seem to consider it as at all a bad compliment but sitting himself down upon the bench before the inn door played away to his square-headed auditory till some human bipeds and amongst the rest jack greenie himself came forth with a jug of humming ale and set it down beside him the piper drank as pipers will drink a long and hearty draught then looked around him and as a matter of course commended liberally to the ears of his entertainer the preparations which had been made for the may-day games a floiter or player of the flute was not long behind and he himself was succeeded by a man with a rote but the great musician of all the performer on the viol without whom the dance would not have been perfect like all other important personages caused himself to be waited for and at length when he did appear came accompanied by his retinue consisting of two long-eared curs and a boy carrying his viol carefully wrapped up in the recesses of a fustian bag with great airs of dignity too he took his way at once into the house and both prudently and humanely tuned his instrument in a room where few if any ears were nigh to hear fain would i dear reader could such a thing be permitted indulge in a long description of the may-day games of old england fain would i tell you who in the wrestling match won the milk-white ram or shot the best arrow or hurled the best quoit but there are more serious things before us and to them we must hurry on leaving to imagination to undertake the task of depicting not only these but the still greater struggle which took place amongst many a hardy yeoman for a fine horse of yorkshire breed given by ralph harland himself in honour of her he loved 
Suffice it then for the present that the sports of the morning were over, that the noonday meal, too, was at an end, that the girls of the village had rearranged their dresses for the lighter amusement of the evening, and were gathering gaily under the group of trees to begin their first dance around the maypole. Ralph Harland stood by Kate's side, and was asking anxiously what made her so sad, when suddenly he raised his eyes, and his countenance became even more overcast than hers. The sound which had made him look up had certainly nothing unusual in it on that busy morning. It was but the tramp of three or four horses coming at a rapid pace, but the young man's heart was anxious, and when his eyes rested on the face of Richard de Ashby, who rode in, followed by three men, and dressed with unusual splendour, well might the young Franklin's bosom be troubled, with feelings bitter and indignant, especially as he saw whom he loved turn red and white, and read in the changing colour the confirmation of many a dark suspicion. The personage who had produced these sensations seemed at first to take no notice of the gay groups around him, but advancing at once to the low inn door, which was nearly blocked up by the jovial person of John Greenlee himself, he sprang to the ground lightly and gracefully, asking in such a tone that all around could hear what he said, whether the Earl of Ashby had yet arrived. On finding that such was not the case, he turned round with an indifferent air, saying, "'Good faith, then I must amuse myself as best I may, till my fair cousin comes. What have you going forward here? A mayday dance? Good sooth, I will make one. Pretty Kate,' he continued, advancing to the spot where she stood, "'will you give me your hand?' "'to lead you a measure round the maypole?' "'It is promised to me,' said Ralph Harland in a stern tone, "'before Kate could reply, "'bending his brows angrily upon his rival. "'It is indeed,' cried Richard de Ashby, "'gazing at him from head to foot "'with that cool look of supercilious contempt, "'which is so hard to bear, "'and yet so difficult to quarrel with. "'Well, but she has two hands. "'She shall give you one and me the other.' "'And this pretty little damsel,' he continued, "'to a girl of some twelve or thirteen years of age, "'who stood by, listening, "'this pretty little damsel shall take my other hand, "'so that is all settled. "'Come, Master Viola, let us hear the notes of the catgut. "'Come, sweet Kate, I long to see those lovely limbs "'playing in the graceful dance.' "'Poor Ralph Harland. "'It was one of those moments "'when it is equally difficult to act and not to act.' especially for one inexperienced, young, and brought up in habitual deference for superior rank and station. A direct insult, an open injury, he would have avenged at once upon the highest head that wagged in all the realm, but the covert scorn of the manner, the hidden baseness of the design, he knew not how to meet, and following, rather than accompanying, his lighter love sweetheart to the dance, he joined in a pastime to which his heart was but ill-attuned. It is under such circumstances that those who are wronged have always the disadvantage. Ralph was fierce, silent, gloomy, while Richard de Ashby was all grace, self-possession, smiles, and cheerfulness. His speech and his glances were for Kate Greenley alone. His looks and his voice were full of triumph, his eyes full of meaning, and many a time and oft, as they danced gaily round, he whispered to her soft things of which no one heard the whole, although there was a keen and eager ear close by, listening for every sound to fix a quarrel on the speaker. 
At length the notes of the viol stopped, and the dance came to an end, just as Richard de Ashby was adding a word or two more to something he had been saying in a low tone to the fair coquette beside him, while her colour changed more than once, and eyelids were cast down. The sudden silence rendered the last half of the sentence audible. It was, Then lose not a moment. Ralph Harland cast her hand from him indignantly, and fronting Richard de Ashby exclaimed, "'To do what?' "'What is that to thee, peasant?' demanded Richard de Ashby, colouring as much with anger at his words having been overheard, as with pride. "'Everything that she does is matter to me,' replied Ralph fiercely. "'If I am to be her husband, and if I am not, woe be to the man that makes her break her promise.' "'You are insolent, peasant.' "'replied the earl's kinsman with a look of scorn. "'Take care, or you will make me angry.' "'It shall be done without care,' replied Ralph Harland, "'feeling no more hesitation, now that he was fully embarked. "'Let go my arm, Kate, and I will soon show you and others "'of what eggshells a lord's cousin can be made. "'What brings you here to spoil our merriment and mar our May-day games? "'Take that as a remembrance of Ralph Harland.' "'And he struck him a blow.' which, although Richard de Ashby partially warded it off, made him stagger and reel back. But at that very moment the three servants he had brought with him, who had hitherto stood at a distance, seeing their master engaged in a squabble with one of the dancers, ran up, and one of them, catching him by the arm, prevented him from falling. His sword was now out of the sheath in an instant, the weapons of his attendants were not behind, and all four rushed upon the young Franklin, exclaiming, "'Cut off his ears! The villain has dared to strike a nobleman! Cut off his ears!' All the villagers scattered back from the object of their fury, except two. Kate Greenley, who cast herself upon her knees before Richard de Ashby, begging him to spare her lover, and Ralph's old grey-headed father, who, running up from the inn door, placed a stout staff in his son's hand, exclaiming, "'Well done, Ralph, my boy!' Thrash em all! Oh, Greenlee, give me another stick that I may help him. One of the serving men, however, struck the old Franklin with the pummel of his sword and knocked him down, while the two others pressed forward upon Ralph, and the foremost caught his left arm, just as Richard de Ashby, putting Kate aside, came within arm's length of him in front, reiterating with fierce vehemence, Cut off his ears! It is probable that the order would have been executed unmercifully had not a sudden ally appeared upon Ralph Harland's side. Leaping from the window of the inn, a man clothed in a close-fitting coat and hose of Lincoln green, with a sword by his side, a narrow buckler on his shoulder, a sheaf of arrows under his left arm, and a leathern bracer just below the bend of the elbow, sprang forward with a pole some six feet long in his hand, and at three bounds cleared the space between the inn and the disputants. The third leap, which brought him up with them, was scarcely taken when one blow of his staff struck the man who held Ralph by the left arm to the ground, and a second sent the sword of Richard de Ashby flying far over his head. At the same moment he exclaimed, looking at the servant whom he had knocked down, Ha-ha, my old acquaintance! When last we had a fall in yonder inn together, I thought we should meet again. Fair play, fair play, not four against one. Get you in, Kate, lighter love, out of harm's way. The day may not end so well as it has begun, 
Fair play, I say, or we may take odds too. Richard Ashby looked round, furiously, after his sword, and laid his hand upon the dagger that hung at his right side. But the sight he saw, as he turned his eyes towards the sun, was one well calculated to moderate, at least, the expression of his rage, for some eight or nine men, all habited alike in close coats of Lincoln Green, were coming up at a quick pace from behind the house, and their apparel and appearance altogether could leave little doubt that they were the companions of him who had first arrived, and in whom he recognised with no slight surprise the same blue-nosed old peasant whom he had found contending with his servants not many nights before. The hump, indeed, was gone, and the neck was straight enough. All signs of decrepitude, too, had passed away, but the face was not to be mistaken, and Richard de Ashby's countenance fell at the sight. He was no coward, however, for amongst the swarm of vices and follies and faults which degraded so many of the Norman nobility of that day, cowardice was rarely, if ever, to be met with. They were a people of the sword, and never unwilling to use it. His first thought, then, was to resist to the death, if need might be, his next, how to resist to the best advantage. Snatching his sword, then, which one of his servants had picked up, he looked to the clump of trees, but Harland and the man in green, with a whole host of villagers whose angry faces betokened him no good, were immediately in the way, so that his only resource seemed to be to retreat to the inn door. The first step he took in that direction, however, produced a rapid movement on the part of the yeomen, or foresters, or whatever the green-coated gentleman might be, which cut him off from that place of refuge, and, at the same moment, the voice of Hardy exclaimed, "'Stop him from the church path, much! "'This rat-trap of ours has too many holes in it, "'but that will close them all. "'Now, Master Richard de Ashby, listen to a word or two. "'You come here with no good purposes to any one, "'and we want no more of you. "'But you shall have your choice of three things.' "'You shall either get to your horse's back "'and go away swearing, as you believe in the Blessed Virgin, "'never to set foot in this place again. "'I don't think you dare break that oath, or—' "'I will not,' replied Richard de Ashby fiercely. "'Very well, then,' said Hardy. "'If that is the case, you shall stand out in the midst, "'cast away sword and dagger, "'betake you to a quarter-staff, "'and see whether, with the same arms, "'young Ralph Harland here, will not thrash you like a sheaf of wheat. "'Fight a peasant with a quarter-staff,' cried Richard de Ashby. "'I will not.' "'Well, then, the third may be less pleasant,' said Hardy. "'I have nothing else to offer, but that we all fall upon you and yours, "'and beat you till you remember Hendley Green, as long as you call yourself a man.' "'Murderous, if you will,' said Richard de Ashby doggedly. "'But we will sell our lives dearly.' "'I don't know that, worshipful sir,' said the man with the purple nose. "'We have no inclination to thrash more men than necessary, "'so all your servitors may take themselves off if they like. "'Run, my men, run, if it so please you. "'But make haste, for my quarter-staff is itching to be about your master's ears.' "'And so saying, he made it whirl round in his hand like the sails of a mill.' One of the men needed no time to deliberate, but betook himself to his heels as fast as he could go. A second hesitated a moment or two, and then, saying, "'It is no use contending with such odds,' moved slowly away. The third, however, 
Hardy's old adversary in the hostelry, placed himself by Richard de Ashby's side, saying, "'I will stand by you, sir,' and added a word or two in a lower tone. "'Now much, and you, Tim of the Mill,' cried Hardy, "'let us rush on them all at once, beat down their swords with your bucklers, and tie them tight. Then we will set the bagpipe before them, and flog them half-way to Pontefract. Quick, quick! I see the priest coming, and he will be for peacemaking.' The first step was hardly taken in advance, however, when the blast of a trumpet sounded upon the high road, and a dozen different cries from the villagers of, "'Hold off! Hold off! Forbear! Here comes the sheriff!' "'Run for it, Master Hardy! They are the lords greenly talked of!' "'Away! Away, good yeoman!' all uttered at once, gave notice to the gentleman in green that some formidable enemy was in the rear. In a moment after, two or three gentlemen of distinguished port riding slowly at the head of some fifty horsemen, came down the road upon the green, and Hardy, as he was called, seeing that the day was no longer his own, was passing across to join his companions on the other side, when Richard de Ashby cast himself in his way, and aimed a blow at him with his sword. The stout yeoman parried it easily with his staff, and struck his opponent on the chest with the sharp end of the pole, thus clearing a path by which he soon placed himself at the head of the foresters. "'Come with us, Harland,' he cried, "'for you will be safer away.' Richard de Ashby, however, shouting aloud and waving his hand to the party of gentlemen who were advancing, soon brought some of them to his side. "'Stop them! Stop them!' he cried, pointing to the men in green. "'I have been grossly ill-used and well-nigh murdered. Let your men go round, my lord, and cut them off.' A word, a sign, from an elderly man at the head of the party, instantly set some twenty of the horsemen into a gallop, to cut off the foresters from the road to the church. They, on their part, took the matter very calmly, however, unslinging their bows, bending them, and laying an arrow on the string of each, with a degree of deliberation which showed that they were not unaccustomed to such encounters. The villagers, however, scattered like a flock of sheep at these intimations of an approaching fray, the girls and the women, screaming and running and tumbling down, took refuge in the neighbouring houses or ran away up the road. The greater part of the men decamped more slowly, looking back from time to time to see what was going on, or some six or seven stout peasants and the yeomen stood gathered together under one of the trees, armed, in some instances, with swords and bows, and one or two displaying a quarter-staff, but all seeming very well disposed to take part in the fray, on one side or the other. Things were in this state, and that hesitating pause had intervened which usually precedes the first blow in a strife of any kind, when the priest, who had been seen before to quit his house, now hurried forward to the group of gentlemen who, without dismounting from their horses, had gathered round Richard de Ashby. His errand was, of course, to preach peace and forbearance, and although his face was round and rosy, his body stout, and indicating strongly a life of ease and a fondness for good things, it is but justice to say that he not only urged the necessity of quiet and tranquillity with eagerness and authority, but he rated Richard de Ashby boldly for his conduct in the village, and showed that he knew a great deal more of his proceedings than was at all pleasant to that personage. "'Sir, you are one of those,' he said, "'who are ever ready to play the fool with a poor village coquette, "'who, if in riding through a place they see a poor girl proud of a neat ankle, 
or a jimp waist, are ever ready to take advantage of her vanity to work her ruin, and if such men put themselves in danger and get a broken head, they must take the consequences without running on to bloodshed and murder. The priest was still speaking. The yeoman was slowly retreating towards the church, without at all heeding the horsemen in their way. Two or three elderly noblemen were listening attentively to the works of the good clergyman, and two young ones, a step behind, were holding themselves somewhat apart from each other, with no great appearance of friendship between them, when the one on the left hand of the group suddenly put the magnificent horse on which he was mounted into a quick canter, and rode straight towards the foresters. At first, supposing his purpose to be hostile, they wheeled upon him, raising their bows at once, and each man drew his arrow to his ear. But seeing that he was not followed, they assumed a more pacific aspect, and, while one of the old lords whom he had left behind called to him loudly, by the name of Hugh, to come back, he not only rode on, but, to the surprise of all, sprang from his horse and grasped young Harland warmly by the hand. This proceeding for the time drew all eyes in that direction, and the end of the priest's speech was but little attended to. But, at his request, one of the gentlemen sent off a servant to the horsemen near the church, telling them not to act without orders. In the meantime, a brief conversation between the young nobleman and the Franklin took place, after which, remounting his horse, the former came back to the group and said, "'May I venture a few words, my lords?' "'Of course, Lord Hugh will take part against me.' exclaimed Richard de Ashby, or old Earl Hubert's blood will not be in his veins. Not so, replied the young gentleman. All old feuds between our families have, thanks to God and the wisdom of those two noble earls, been done away. No one more rejoices in the friendship which now exists between our houses than I do. None will more strenuously strive to preserve it. I came merely to tell that which I know and that which I have just heard. The young man I have been speaking with is as honest and true as any knight or noble in the world. He once rendered me a good service, and no one shall harm him, for that, at least, I pawn my name and knighthood. He tells me, however, that this worthy gentleman here, having taken a fancy to his promised bride, thinks fit to intrude on their May-day sports, and stretching somewhat the privileges of a gentleman, makes love to the girl before his face. His endurance, it seems, does not reach that length, and he struck our friend Sir Richard, who fell upon him again, sword in hand, with his three servants, when these good foresters of Barnsdale interfered to see fair play. "'The whole is true, I doubt not,' cried the priest. "'Look, look!' cried Richard to Ashby fiercely. "'While you listen to such gossip, they are making their escape. They are going into the priest's house as I live.' As he spoke, a loud voice from the other side of the green shouted in a laughing tone, "'For Richard de Ashby's bonnet!' All eyes were instantly turned in that direction, where, at the door of the priest's house, two or three of the foresters were still to be seen, the rest of them having gone in one by one. In front of the group stood the man they called Hardy, and he repeated again, with a loud shout, "'For Richard de Ashby's bonnet!' As soon as he saw that he had attracted attention, he suddenly raised the bow he held in his hand, drew it to the full extent of his arm, and an arrow whistled through the air. Richard de Ashby had started slightly on one side as soon as he saw the archer take his aim, 
but the forester altered the direction of his arm with a laugh even as he loosed the shaft from the string and the missile with unerring truth passed through the hood that it was intended for and would have fallen beyond had it not been stopped by a duel in the front as it was the arrow remained hanging amongst his black hair and when he drew it forth with a white cheek and a somewhat trembling hand he read imprinted in black letters on the wood just below the feather scathelock remember the nobles handed the one arrow to the other read the name and the word that followed it and then gazed in each other's faces with a meaning look call back the horseman said one of the elder gentlemen these men are gone and it is as well as it is End of chapter 4